One minute, it's Aristocats. <laughs> then we're talking the Black Cauldron. These movies mostly pretty bad. <laughs> and I'm sick of discussing them. I said, oh, 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 no. Katzenberg, his opinions are absurd. I said, oh, 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 no. I'm dying. Let's just do toaster again. I said, why should I podcast? Why should I care? This era's mostly bad. And this film's a nightmare. Why should I podcast? <laughs> Why should I care? Sick of Billy Joel just saying that he's got street savoir faire. <laughs> Yay, good job, good job. Always, always do some extra for the end of an era. Yeah, you did a good job. Thank you, thank you. This movie exists. It does. We now have to talk about it. For an hour and 90 minutes. <laughs> Oliver and Company. Oliver and Company. What if I just sang the song again? <laughs> no, no. No, probably we should talk about it. I think my people might get tired of the song after an hour and th 30 minutes. I truly am asking why should I podcast this <laughs> week? But nevertheless, let's start the show. everybody and welcome to me mom and the mouse a podcast about the joy of watching cartoons with your family we're watching every film in the disney animated canon and talk about how it was made what it means and why we don't love it as it has been for most of this era <laughs> my name is isaac coleman and i'm joined as always by my mother rue coleman hello isaac Hi, mom and we do want to give a special shout out to our editor brad murray at oak studios Thanks for all the work that you do, absolutely, positively. <laughs> I don't know. Good luck finding a memorable quote in Oliver and Company. This week on the program, we are actually finishing Disney's Bronze Era Yay. with 1988's Oliver and Company, directed by George Scribner. Asterisk. Yeah. We'll talk about that there, asterisk. But uh, first, Mom, what does this movie mean to you? <laughs> It's a very memorable uh, movie trailer. <laughs> Isn't it just a trailer, right? <laughs> it's true. We were talking about the uh, the VHS trailer. Yes, which we have seen many a time. And which I, I managed to track down on YouTube the specific one. Because yep. while we were watching this movie, we were just like, trailer line, trailer line. Trailer scene. There's a trailer scene right there. I remember that scene from the trailer. Yeah, I haven't seen this movie very many times, but... I apparently have seen the trailer a lot. Do you have any knowledge of when you first saw this movie? I do not have any <laughs> memory of when I first saw it, but it would have been after you were born. I suspect I hadn't seen it. No, not till the home video release, but um, my Aunt Abby recorded it off of the Disney Channel for us, and we had it on a VHS that she had recorded for us. And so I suspect I watched it then because uh, when I was when it first came out, I know we weren't going to watch it or go see it because my parents were not interested in it at all. My mom looked at that trailer and went, ugh, too much rock music. 
<laughs> and was not interested in it at all. She looked at that trailer and she said, what should I care? Exactly. She did finally see it later eventually. And she's like, it wasn't that bad. <laughs> but she didn't say it was good. She said, it's got streets of warfare. <laughs> You'd think that, you know, this movie would have more meaning for me. The main character girl is similar in age to what I would have been when the movie came out. Her name is Jenny. My name was Jenny. My nickname growing up was Jenny because my name is Jennifer, Mm -hmm. which we don't really say on the podcast, but it is. Secrets revealed. It is. There's secrets. This is our big exclusive to get people to listen to the Oliver and Company episode. Mom reveals her name for the first time. Yeah, it it just didn't make a lot of impression. And I'll be honest, you know, we watched this movie earlier this week and I still feel like it didn't make much of an impression. You yourself are asking, why should I care? <laughs> As you say, uh... Your aunt recorded this for us. We technically had this growing up, but just on, you know, a blank VHS. Right. Or it was recorded. I was trying to remember if this was the same one Brave Little Toaster was on, but we both had them in that format. She recorded this for us in 98. So we probably would have gotten it mid to late 98. Maybe. I thought I remembered this one being like, you can't watch it or you can't watch it as much. I suspect... It was not that I said you can't watch it. I think it was more it was easier for you guys to watch the clamshell ones because you could look at the box and see what it was. Right. Um, But either way, at some point we did watch it and never really cared to watch it much. It's Mm -hmm. funny. I as going into this, I was like, I only remember about five scenes. (laughs) And then when we watch it, I was like, oh, that's the whole movie. The five scenes are in the city, (laughs) in Fagan's gross hovel. Uh, in the rich person's place, ending. Like, those are the four scenes. Yeah. It's just, as you say, there's not a lot. We, we In the past, we coined the term uh, butter movie for a movie that just <laughs> slips right out your head as soon as you watch it. This is like, this is the butteriest movie we've covered so far. This <laughs> is kind of This is. has been put in the microwave. It's so slippery. This is like that butter spray they put on popcorn. It's vapor. <laughs> it's, it's... It's impossible to remember. It's not as like grueling and boring as Fox and the Hound, but it's it's totally forgettable. And there's just nothing here to hold on to. There's no characters. There's no particularly interesting quirks of animation uh, or music or. Yeah, there's just there's not much going on. You may be right. (laughs) I'm moving out. (laughs) And yeah, so I never really cared for it. Um, I was actually looking forward to doing this episode because I was like, oh, man, you know, that's like Katzenberg craziness. That's what that movie is. Mm -hmm. It's a little bit of that, but it's mostly just kind of empty. And I said now this was controversial. So let me say, in my opinion, When we were discussing after the movie, I said this and I stand by it. I enjoy the Black Cauldron more than this. This is my (laughs) least favorite movie of the Bronze Era, except for Fox and the Hound, which is clearly (laughs) clearly the worst. Very few movies are worse than Fox and the Hound. And I mean that sincerely. But Black Cauldron, like it has some cool animation. It's trying to be something, even if it totally fails. Yeah. There's like a couple good performances in it, like John Hurt rules. Watching it, I was like, you know, this isn't good, but I'm like, I'm kind of here. 
with like I'm at least watching this movie with Oliver and company. It's I could barely focus on the screen mm-hmm. um, and there's no vision. It's it's totally cynical. And let's talk about that. <laughs> this is the episode where I'm really going to talk about Michael Eisner and Jeffrey Katzenberg. As promised. As promised, and to a much lesser extent, Frank Wells. These were three guys who worked together at Paramount, primarily, but not exclusively in television, and they had been very successful executives there. Eisner was a real creative type. Katzenberg liked to think of himself as a creative type. (laughs) And Frank Wells is kind of the silent partner. He's not talked about as much as the two of them. In many people's opinion, he was kind of like part of why Eisner was such a good executive because Wells really was his second in command and Katzenberg was sort of his third in command. And so like at Paramount, they were extremely successful. One of the things Eisner did that he would refer to a lot later was he was the only person who was willing to greenlight a little film called Raiders of the Lost Ark. <laughs> uh, they took it to every other studio and every other studio was like, this is way too expensive. This movie's going to cost so much. You want all these stunts, all these locations. And Eisner went, OK, but George Lucas, Steven Spielberg and Harrison Ford want to do a movie that feels like it almost can't fit. Like it's going to be big. whatever movie we spend on it. We'll make it back. And he was, of course, incredibly correct oh, about yeah. that. Oh, yeah. And so that that was one of his biggest coups. And it shows that he somewhat had those creative instincts. Mm-hmm. So they go from Paramount to Disney in a coup that we've talked about a little bit, in part because they were liked by Roy E. Disney, but mainly because, as we've discussed, Disney was dying. Its yeah. motion pictures were awful. They weren't being marketed. And the board was like, we have to get in some people who are totally new, totally different, Honestly, don't have that much fondness for like the classic era of Disney. In fact, Eisner had like barely seen any Disney movies <laughs> when he joined because it's like we have to get some <laughs> fresh ideas in here or else, which I think they were correct about. Um, and Eisner and Katzenberg were initially very successful um, with Eisner and Wells running. And we've talked about this already, I know. But just to reiterate, in case someone hasn't listened to every episode, <laughs> Eisner and Wells running everything as CEO and president, but primarily focused on like theme parks and home video and the Disney stores and all these other divisions. While Katzenberg was in charge of movies with Roy E. Disney technically in charge of animation, but Katzenberg pretty much bullied him and and got whatever he wanted. Um, So he's effectively in charge of animation for the next several years and the next several movies we're going to talk about. Well, you know, it sounds like he was Roy's boss. So yeah, exactly. And he's also just a much more forceful personality than what I've read about Roy E. Disney. Mm -hmm. Um, Because Katzenberg is he is a man of competition and he is a guy who has been fascinating to me for a long time. He's not a good person. None of these people were or are. You know, there's a lot of like, especially in the big Eisner Katzenberg split, there's a lot of like, who was in the right here? And my very firm opinion is nobody. These guys are all jerks. (laughs) They're all super rich. They all backstabbed each other constantly. But what I, I tend to find so interesting about them is that like, 
there is a humanity to them. It's a crass, awful, greed-driven humanity. But when you read about these guys, there is that element. They're at the very least interesting. Yeah. Bob Iger, who has been the head of Disney, and his successor, whose name I can never even remember, <laughs> I don't feel like they ever get excited about anything. I don't feel like they ever feel any emotion at all. I would be shocked to find out that Bob Iger has felt a strong emotion. They just like <laughs> quietly count their money and make the little calculations that make the world way worse. Like those are the evil executives of the 2000s and 2010s, just like dry, dusty mummies moving (laughs) numbers on an abacus and killing people versus like, you know, Katzenberg and I are again, like the coked up 80s. They they just they have energy. They did care. They cared about the wrong things and they hurt a lot of people and destroyed so many lives in their wake. But at least it's kind of an interesting story to read about as the world ends. Mm -hmm. All right. That's Isaac cynicism corner. Katzenberg, (laughs) he, though, as I say, he's a man of pure competition. He doesn't have a personal life. He's never really had a family, uh, unlike Eisner. And he's very upfront about like, I just love competition. I love business. I love like setting these challenges for myself and overcoming them and being as aggro and aggressive as possible. Mm -hmm. Uh, We talked about him the most so far on the Black Cauldron episode where, of course, he, you know, stormed in and like demanded to personally edit the film, even though that was impossible. And that's kind of the impression he would continue to have. Now, Katzenberg, I would argue has had at least as great, and I would actually probably say a greater impact on American animation than Walt Disney. Interesting. I truly believe that. Because he changed everything. I mean, Walt, you know, he got the ball rolling, but Katzenberg, like, determined what the tone and, like, type of movies that would be made in Western animation would be for decades, Mm -hmm. and we are not at all on track to getting free of that. (laughs) Well, if you figure out the money-making formula, you're going to keep using it until it stops making money, though. Exactly, exactly. And, like, this is kind of ground zero for that with Oliver and company. Let's come back to that in a moment. I want to actually get ahead of the story a little bit with Mm -hmm. what happens with Eisner and Katzenberg. So their first years are incredibly successful. They find some formulas that work, and honestly... Reading Disney War, which is the book about Eisner specifically, I feel like, honestly, a lot of their innovation that was so successful was just like, what if we did things that worked exactly. and didn't do things that didn't work? Yeah. Which is not what anyone was just not something Card Walker or even really <laughs> Ron Miller was saying. Yeah. So like they were approached with, you know. What if we did home video? The home video market's getting bigger. And they were like, I don't know. There's a lot of like value in keeping these things locked up and releasing them in theaters once every seven years. But let's try it with Pinocchio. Mm-hmm. Pinocchio was a massive hit. And they're like, OK, we have a home video division now. In addition to releasing, you know, our extant movies on home video, we're going to release new movies every year. Uh, and that was also something Katzenberg decided for animation was we're going to release a movie every year, which they pretty much have done. This is the first one of the movies every year. Yes, because it's 88, 89, 90, 91, 92. There's a skip, but then 94, 95, 96, etc. And that's basically continued till this day. Yeah. I mean, sometimes there is a little while in there when they were alternating like one year it's a Pixar and one year it's a Disney, but... 
an animated film with Disney's name on it, at least one coming out every year. Mm-hmm. And now, of course, they get even more aggressive with that, with two Pixar films a year, every year now, <laughs> and three Marvel films and 800 TV shows on Disney Plus and just, you know, constantly be flooding people with content. Yep. Well, if we make a ton of it, somebody will like something, right? Right. And again, it's like, what if we had a store? What if we had downtown Disney? And it's it's really once they had to start coming up with new ideas that they start to falter a bit. So again, it's Eisner and then Wells and then Katzenberg. And Katzenberg always wanted to be the number two. He saw himself as the number two. He wanted to be president more than just about anything. And he kept being promised Eisner and Wells would be like, oh, Wells is going to retire. He doesn't <laughs> want to be an executive forever. Like you, Katzenberg, you lunatic. Like they genuinely, they would promise him this constantly. And then Wells died in a tragic accident. I believe it was a helicopter crash. And as soon as he dies, Katzenberg immediately starts asking, like, so I'm going to be named president, right? When am I going to be named president? Like, body's not even cold, but I'm president, right? Which, on the one hand, incredibly callous and shows what I'm talking about, where Katzenberg does not care about human beings at all, I don't think. But... Eisner had been promising him this and they'd already had some tensions between them. And this ends up being the final straw where Eisner is like, you're not going to be president. And Katzenberg's like, then I don't want to be here. Mm -hmm. I'm going to go with my friends Spielberg and Geffen. Our initials are SKG. We're going to go found DreamWorks SKG. And uh, it's going to be a huge competitor and it's kind of going to eat Disney's lunch for like a (laughs) decade. Yeah. And he's like, also, my contract says I get a big bonus. And Eisner's like, no, you don't. He's like, literally, it says that in the contract. He's like, no, it doesn't. And he's like, "Okay, I'm going to sue you. And the (laughs) lawyers are like, it literally says that in the contract. (laughs) You know that. So, again, like they're both backstabbing each other. They're both lying to each other. There are no good people in these stories. Uh, And this is where many things start to go downhill. But I think one of the things that people have to understand about Katzenberg at when he goes to DreamWorks, he becomes the head of DreamWorks animation. And that's mostly what he got to work on, which made him very angry because once again, (laughs) he wanted to be like way more in charge than he was. And Spielberg was like, no. (laughs) So he's in charge of DreamWorks animation primarily. And his big movie, his big passion project, the movie where he had total control and got to do whatever he wanted was Shrek. And I think that's incredibly telling. I do not like the movie Shrek. I did when I was a kid. Some people still like it now. But again, I think it's very important as we're talking about Oliver and company to understand Shrek as the ultimate realization of Katzenberg's quote unquote creative ideals, where first of all, (laughs) that movie starts with Shrek wiping his butt on a Disney storybook It's nonstop fart jokes and poop jokes and gross out jokes and earwax jokes. It insults Disney Mm -hmm. with the Disney parks, with the Duloc scene where they almost say curse word. And Lord Farquaad is supposed to be a the villain of that movie for anyone who hasn't seen the cinematic masterpiece Shrek. Lord Farquaad (laughs) is supposed to be a mean caricature of Michael Eisner as this little, you know, tyrant ruling over Disneyland, except On that, it's interesting that Katzenberg is the one who's famously short (laughs) and who is seen as incredibly tyrannical. So (laughs) 
It may be backfired. <laughs> it's him projecting so much. But like, and it's all pop culture references nonstop. Yep. And he wants to get celebrities, which is one of Katzenberg's big innovations that American animation has never gotten free from, which is, you know, in the past with Disney was like, let's find the right actor for this role. Let's find someone with an interesting voice or an interesting take on the character. By and large, you know, obviously during the package era, there was some cynical like casting of celebrities and that kind of worked out better because every celebrity was doing radio at that time. And that's basically transferable skills to voice acting. But Katzenberg is really like big names. Big names are what will get people in the movies. And I don't care if the movie's good. He doesn't. He truly doesn't. There's a quote Uh, that he would say all the time to the point that the animators would make fun of it, which is he would say, do you want to win the Academy Award or the Bank of America Award? (laughs) This was his saying at Disney that he was super proud of, which is like, literally, do not care about the quality of movies. Do not care if anyone remembers this movie a year after it comes out. Do not care if the animation in Shrek that was a technological marvel at the time has now aged like milk. Doesn't matter. It made money in theaters and then it made money on home video. And it doesn't matter if it leaves a cultural impact or any, you know, kind of art at all. And so, you know, get the big names on there for that reason, even if they give bad performances. And also he wanted to be friends with celebrities. He wanted to make connections because ultimately, as always, Katzenberg is in the business of Katzenberg, no matter what company he's working for. Um, And so he's always trying to raise his own profile with these people, which is another thing Eisner didn't like at Disney. Eisner, by the way, cutting back to him for a moment, he wanted to be Walt. That was (laughs) Eisner's thing. Once he joined the company, was he really he even talked about at one point changing his name to Mickey Eisner. And he was like, I'm going to do all the Walt television specials, even after everyone was like, let's please get a host who has any charisma at all. Um, and he really wanted to be the face of the company. And he was like, I, he really wanted to tap into that Disney nostalgia and kind of make Disney, you know, this prestige studio that people had all these warm feelings about like he used to. And he wanted to be the face of that, which is a big part of his own kind of personal downfall there. Uh, because he wasn't Walt. In many ways, he was not Walt Disney. Yep. And so that's why there's that hilarious supercut that was put out by Podcast The Ride that you and I love referencing of all of the <laughs> specials starring Michael Eisner, where he always introduces them by saying, hello, 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 hello. <laughs> yep. And I'm pretty sure I watched all or most of those specials when they originally came on. Mm-hmm. I remember watching... Oh, Michael Eisner, what's he doing now? (laughs) Right, which I think what he's doing, why his hello sounds so weird, I think he's trying to flatten his accent because one of the things he was very self-conscious about was being a New York Jew from a rich family when Walt was this Midwestern Christian. And so I think that's why he's saying hello so weird because it's a New York guy trying to flatten his accent and it's a little (laughs) odd, but it's funny. Back to Katzenberg, he... Goes to DreamWorks. Shrek is the biggest movie of all time. Wins the first ever Academy Award for animated movie. Makes a ton of money. Defines the industry forever. Every movie is now trying to be Shrek-like movies. That's what he does at DreamWorks as well. It's big names, you know, and and big marketing campaigns. And it's very, quote unquote, hip. It's very contemporary. And uh, 
most of those movies do not last and are not memorable. Uh, the best DreamWorks movie is Prince of Egypt, which is the one where they were still kind of trying to do Disney and be more timeless and fantastical and, mm-hmm. you know, tell a story that wasn't contemporary. And I think most of DreamWorks animation is terrible. And then they're succeeded by Illumination now, which is Katzenberg didn't have any involvement in, but it is like the ultimate realization of his stink of his <laughs> ideas because like movies like Sing and Illumination has made some movies I enjoy. Uh, you and I, you know, we like the first couple Despicable Me movies. You like right, that Minions right. movie. I haven't seen it. I kind of want to. I, I bet it's pretty fun. But like it's fun. But they've made those movies like Sing that are literally just here's the pitch. It's a bunch of people, you know, singing songs, you know. Is there a story? Absolutely <laughs> not. Uh, the story seems to always just be, um, do you like those reality TV shows where people are singing? Well, here's that, but with cartoons. <laughs> and I think all of this you see in Oliver and Company to a much lesser extent. We're not yet at the full Shrek, <laughs> uh, but in some ways, those are the attitudes that are dominating this movie. And I think that's why part of why it's such a problem. The Bronze Era, even more than other eras of Disney, every era of Disney struggles with this, but the Bronze Era especially just feels like this war between the people who want to make art and the people who want to make product. And last week we talked about Brave Little Toaster and I said, I think this is kind of the ultimate art movie where it's like they had no budget, they were making it out of pure love, you know, everyone working on it believed in it. And then this movie, conversely, is the pure product movie where nobody cared about it at all. (laughs) The end of the Katzenberg story that I have to talk about after he leaves DreamWorks, which is, again, a massive financial success and... I think made animation worse forever. Even though some some DreamWorks movies are good, I'm again Prince of Egypt, and even like I like those How to Train Your Dragon movies. They've got some good stuff in yep. there, but yeah. Overall, it starts these trends that you and I hate of like everything's fart jokes now. Everything is is super contemporary, and but after he leaves there, uh, he joins with Meg Whitman who was the former CEO of eBay, former CEO of Hewlett Packard, former executive at various places, and a failed Republican California gubernatorial candidate. And together they found Quibi. And I wasn't necessarily going to talk about this, but my brother, future guest, Isaiah Coleman, really (laughs) wants me to talk about Quibi. And it is, again, it is the end of the Katzenberg story so far. So Quibi was a streaming service that was going to have all original programming. The episodes of each show would be 10 minutes or less. It was only going to be available on mobile devices. (laughs) Shows would be filmed in both portrait and landscape mode, and you could switch between them with this technology called Turnstile, and it would cost $5 a month with ads, $8 a month without ads. And the idea was that this would be Gen Z's favorite streaming service. Now, it might be noted (laughs) that uh, Meg Whitman and Jeffrey Katzenberg are extremely not Gen Z. (laughs) They are the king and queen of the boomers. But the idea is, you know, oh, it's only on your phone because kids love phones and it's 10 minutes or less because (laughs) kids don't have a good attention span. Like, it is truly an old person's idea of what a young person wants. It's this baffling idea Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, and Katzenberg insisted the whole time that 
Quote, Jeffrey Katzenberg insists that his new video streaming service, Quibi, which, by the way, the reason it's called Quibi, it's short for Quick Bites. Ah. Because it's Quick Bites of content. Mm-hmm. Shouldn't that be Quibi? Yes. <laughs> so... He insists that Quibi isn't competing against Netflix, Disney Plus, HBO Max, Peacock, or any of the other streaming services that have launched or are launching soon. You've got it all wrong. You're not even asking the right questions. We don't think we're in the streaming wars, Katzenberg tells The Verge. They're all battling for this, he says as he thrusts his arm toward a TV in the room. We're going for this, he says, gesturing towards his phone. Don't tell them. (laughs) Quibi is really for 18 to 44-year-olds and very, very targeted at the 25 to 35-year-old millennial. We are not kids. We are not family. (laughs) Funnily enough, uh, there's a lot of reasons why this is wrong. I've actually done, for my work, I did a whole report on Quibi and why Quibi is bad Mm -hmm. because I work at a startup and I think Quibi is a perfect thing to know about at a startup because they did literally everything wrong. (laughs) Every single thing you can do wrong, they did wrong. But Actual Gen Z viewing behavior, Gen Z actually likes much longer content. The sort of new type of content Gen Z really latches onto is Twitch streams that are like four hours long. Mm. That is how they like to watch things. Again, this idea of like they have a super short attention span. That's what a boomer thinks about kids. Right. And basically his argument is we're competing with YouTube and TikTok and stuff rather than streaming services. You know, we'll have like, Super high end, expensive production values. So we'll be the, you know, the professional Hollywood alternative to YouTube and TikTok and Vine and so on, which nobody wants. Nobody wants that at all. What's fun about YouTube and TikTok is that it's just random people having fun and also that it's free. Right. They had absolutely no uh, competitive advantage. They stole the turnstile technology that lets you switch from portrait to landscape from another company. Katzenberg's argument was social networks are making content at $100 a minute. We're making content at $100,000 a minute. Because again, (laughs) he thinks that making something good is spending money. And he thinks that the measure of whether or not something's good is whether or not it makes money. And so Quibi, it raised $2 billion in funding by March 2020. Because again, he's friends with all these celebrities, right? And this is really where he cashed in all his favors and was like, Everybody give me money. Yeah. And what everybody was saying, like all the investors that were interviewed during this time, because I've read so many articles and interviews about Quibi, is all the investors were like, yeah, we know this sounds like a terrible idea, but it's Katzenberg. You know, he jumped to Disney when that company seemed like it was going to die and helped save it. Yeah. He, you know, jumped to DreamWorks, which was like, what is this? And made that a huge success. Anyway, so he raises... $2 billion in March 2020. In April 2020, it launches. By October 2020, Quibi had stopped existing. It was a catastrophic failure. (laughs) Uh, Because of course it was. Because who wants this? Nobody. Absolutely nobody. And the thing is, Katzenberg completely refused to take any responsibility for it. There was a (laughs) moment in May when they could have tried to save it. And instead, he does this huge op-ed for the New York Times where he blames the pandemic for Quibi. He's like, nobody wants to watch streaming services in the pandemic. Which is like the complete opposite of the what that was happening during the pandemic. Correct. Streaming services across the board reported their best years ever during the pandemic 
because obviously. Right. What else are you doing? You can't go out. Again, this is like this is the hubris of Katzenberg, who can never be wrong. And for a while, he was able like his instincts kind of nonetheless managed to latch on to the cultural zeitgeist. But seems like he's truly lost it. And who knows? (laughs) Who knows what he'll do next? So going back now to Oliver and Company, (laughs) I've talked about Quibi, Isaiah. Are you happy? I talked about Quibi. (laughs) Done talking about the big shots now. Oliver and Company got started at a gong show that was hosted by Eisner and Katzenberg. We're not done talking about them. We're going to be talking about them for weeks. (laughs) And so gong shows, they did this a lot of Paramount as well, based on the game show of the same name. It was just you present an idea. And if they thought it was bad, they would yell gong at you because that's not stressful at all. Mm -hmm. So to read from Disney War. A few days later, Eisner issued invitations to one of his gong shows, a first for the animators. He told them he wanted five new ideas from each of them. And this is shortly after the screening of The Black Cauldron, where Katzenberg throws a temper tantrum. Mm -hmm. Ron Clements went to a bookstore and started leafing through a book of fairy tales. One caught his eye, Hans Christian Andersen's Little Mermaid. Though the fairy tale had a sad ending, the mermaid dies, Clements wrote a two-page treatment in which the mermaid becomes human after meeting her prince. He was also a big fan of science fiction at the time, so his other ideas were all science fiction, including one he jotted down, Treasure Island in Space. Eisner and Katzenberg went around the table, and animators got a crash course in high concept. When Clement's turn came, he said, The Little Mermaid, gong, Eisner and Katzenberg said immediately in unison. <laughs> Too similar to Splash. Right. Splash, the, the mermaid movie, the live action uh, mermaid movie that was one of Eisner's first big successes for Disney. Okay, how about Treasure Island in Space? Gong. Eisner knew that Paramount was already developing a Star Trek sequel with a Treasure Island angle. Yeah. Which never happened. I wish it had. I want to know what that's about. Yeah, right? Pete Young, another animator, suggested Oliver Twist with dogs. (laughs) Everybody waited for the gong, but none came. Then Katzenberg said he loved it. He'd wanted to do a live-action film version of the Broadway musical Oliver while at Paramount, but it had never gotten out of development. Now Katzenberg had the idea they could do a Broadway musical as an animated feature with dogs in the main roles. Oliver Twist with Dogs got the go-ahead. Clements left the meeting depressed. He'd been gonged after only a few words, but Roy came up to him afterward and said he liked the Little Mermaid idea. And the next morning, Katzenberg called to say he'd read all five of his ideas overnight. He too liked the mermaid idea and suggested that Clements expand his treatment. Clements was amazed and impressed that a high-ranking executive like Katzenberg had actually read his material and reacted to it so quickly. And so, again, that's from Disney War by James B. Stewart. So that shows, you know, Katzenberg did care at this time. And they both of those guys, again, I think partially because of the coke, just worked <laughs> constantly all day, all night. Katzenberg, especially, there's nothing in his life but work. And so that's how Little Mermaid gets started, which we'll talk about next week. And again, that's like, OK, Musker and Clements will take this. It'll be more animated driven mm-hmm. or animator driven, rather. And it'll be, you know, whatever. They can do whatever they want. That thing's not going to be a success anyway. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, we'll work on Oliver and Company. And that's the one where Katzenberg is really meddling. And they needed so many ideas because if you're going to put out an animated movie every year, you've got to be working on three or four of them at once because it takes, you know, two to three years to do an animated movie. Right. And so, again, 
Katzenberg is super involved in this to the extent that it has a single auteur. I would argue it's Katzenberg, which is why it is super contemporary. You know, the poster is this dog in sunglasses. It has the famous names of Billy Joel and Cheech Marin and Dom DeLuise and Robert Loggia and Bette Midler and why it's super contemporary. The tagline was the first Disney movie with attitude, which tells you absolutely everything you need to know. Yeah, I'm glad they didn't go with the working title, though, which was Oliver and the Dodger, because that just sounds like they're doing Fox and the Hound again. Right. Cat and the Dog. And so uh, the film was originally going to be co-directed by George Scribner, a first timer, and Richie Rich, who had worked on Black Cauldron and I think uh, worked on some of the other movies we've talked about. While Pete Young, who pitched the idea, was going to be the film's story director. Eisner and Katzenberg made themselves roadblocks in the production. Roy E. Disney would also throw in weird ideas like he really wanted. Roy E. Disney wanted the movie to be sillier. He's always advocating for movies that are more in the classic Disney style. So he wanted the human. Human Fagin and his crowd of rowdy dogs to attempt to steal a rare panda from the city zoo. <laughs> In the middle of production, though, Pete Young, who had this idea originally, died unexpectedly at the age of 37. Very sad. Meanwhile, Steve Hewlett, another Disney screenwriter, worked on it for a bit, but then was removed from the project and then from Walt Disney entirely. And the final script is credited to Jim Cox, Tim Disney, who was Roy's son, And James Mangold, did you see this? James Mangold, director of Logan and Ford versus Ferrari and the upcoming Indiana Jones 5. James Mangold's first film credit, (laughs) co-writer of Oliver and Company. Very odd. Yep. And Richard Rich also was removed halfway through production, leaving the first time director Scribner as officially the sole director on the project. Which is why you said asterisk. Yes. Scribner didn't really direct uh, any other animated movies after this. I guess he directed the direct-to-video Mickey Mouse Prince and the Popper featurette. He was going to be a co-director on The Lion King, and then they took him off, probably for the best. It, it doesn't sound like he was very good. He's still working as an Imagineer, and uh, he definitely edits his own Wikipedia page. <laughs> Quote from the Wikipedia page. Scribner recently completed documenting the expansion of the Panama Canal through a series of paintings that capture both the magnitude of the project as well as the unique culture and stories of the people of Panama. The paintings can be found on his official website listed below. <laughs> that is the most I'm editing my own Wikipedia page line that you can have. It's it's pretty darn funny. <laughs> so as Steve Hewlett, who again, that screenwriter who was working on it briefly and who wrote the most comprehensive history of the movie, just called Mouse in Transition, The Trials of Oliver and Company for CartoonBrew.com. He calls it a film without a voice. And I really think, above all, that is the problem with this movie. It is a film without a voice. It did not at any point have a person who believed in it. Even Pete Mm -hmm. Young, who died and who might have had more of a take on the material. You know, that was one of five ideas he had to pitch at the last minute, you know, for this ridiculous gong show. Mm -hmm. It really just got made because Katzenberg was excited about doing it because he had been excited about doing Oliver the musical. Right. You know, that's why I say he's the most auteur, but nobody cared about this movie. Let's quickly talk about the movie's release. Reading again from Disney War. Like Mouse Detective, no one at Disney was entirely satisfied with the finished Oliver and Company, including Katzenberg. 
but he was impatient with artistic reservations. Do you want to win the Academy Award or the Bank of America Award? He asked. In that regard, Oliver and Company had two marketing advantages, the classic Dickens story that people knew and a pop score by well-known composers. Katzenberg insisted that Disney put some aggressive marketing behind it. And Oliver opened in 1988. They specifically this is me talking. They specifically opened it on the same day as Land Before Time, just to like stunt on Don Bluth, uh, who was eating their lunch and they were very mad about it. And to everyone's surprise, it grossed $53 million, setting a new record for an animated feature. Katzenberg was not only emboldened by the success of an animated movie that had been his idea. Note how he's rewriting history there. Uh uh But also by the growing realization that Disney had a virtual monopoly in animation and it could be even more profitable than live action. After all, there were no high-priced stars or blockbuster directors demanding a percentage of the gross revenues. With almost no demand for their skills beyond Disney, the animators were barely paid above scale and lived so modestly that at a retreat for the top artists at the Santa Barbara Biltmore, several asked if they could keep the soap and shampoo from their hotel rooms. Initially preoccupied with the live-action schedule, Katzenberg devoting more of his time to animation. Scheduling 6 a.m. meetings on Tuesdays and Fridays at the animation offices in Glendale that typically lasted three hours. Though invited to attend, Roy resented the early hours. When he came, he tended to say little, and when he did speak, Katzenberg listened impatiently and then ignored him. Though the animators had learned to be deferential toward Katzenberg, behind his back they drew cartoons lampooning him. Many of them were adolescent and scatological. In one widely circulated drawing, Katzenberg is urinating on one of the animator's storyboards, one hand outstretched. The caption, more Diet Coke, because Katzenberg was a huge Diet Coke drinker. In fact, he would at the beginning of his meetings, he would hold out his hand and an animator was expected to put a cold, open Diet Coke into it. Like that is ridiculously Uh, tyrannical. where He's just like holds out his hand and you're expected to know that means put a Diet Coke in it. So uh, everyone hated him. But he starts to get more involved. So he realizes the value of animation because of this movie. And then, of course, Little Mermaid is the big success that they're really looking for. And we're off to the races from there. Yep. Mom, do you want to take us through the cast of this movie? Well, we've got Joey Lawrence as Oliver. Pretty sure he was just a child actor at the time. Been in a couple things. Not much that I could see. The main voice actor that's you know the first big name really is billy joel doing dodger right and of course he was having a really good time doing it it's his only movie credit really yeah Uh, (laughs) so billy joel let's talk about him real quick massive massive uh success at this time and of course still quite well liked now i have to say billy joel is now seen as like the epitome of lame by a lot of people really i still really like billy joel i mean all older music becomes lame over time yeah 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 your your generation is dying out mother and eventually we'll all just be dust but (laughs) i know i think billy joel is seen as lame because like i don't know some of his songs are kind of like goofy and like in the middle of the night they're not very cool they don't (laughs) hew to an established genre but like I love Billy Joel. I've always loved Billy Joel. Watching this movie since then, I've just been listening to Billy Joel songs all week. Some of his songs are like 
very important to my girlfriend and I. We bonded over, you know, some of his songs and like uh, have them as our songs or whatever. <laughs> uh, also, unfortunately, uh, Eric Clapton, which is unfortunate because now he's like a weird COVID denier who writes songs about how vaccines are bad, which sucks. Uh, yeah, it does. But of course, at this time, he's a uh, he's huge and he's a huge get. And all the marketing for this movie is like Billy Joel is in it. And he did it for the reason that so many celebrities would end up doing Disney movies for Katzenberg, which is I'm going to make something my kids will love. Uh-huh. Like I could say to my kids, like, look, that's daddy, a Disney movie, and they'll respect me. Exactly. Anyway, so I said all that stuff about how I love Billy Joel. Um, I really appreciate his songs. I think he's an incredibly talented songwriter and piano player. And I love the style of his singing where it's so energetic and he's mm-hmm. practically screaming the lyrics and he can do so much emotion and acting like, you know, for Goodnight Saigon, like he can be very slow and sad and you really feel the pain of the Vietnam War. But then, you know, the chorus on that is so big and we will all go down together. Uh-huh. Uh, I think he's, you know, this wonderful singer. And I say all this because I think that this is maybe the worst, certainly one of the worst voice acting performances in a movie to date, <laughs> in a Disney movie to date, rather, uh, in any of the ones we've covered. I think he's really bad when he's talking in this. Mm, So they should have just let him sing the whole time. Right. Maybe. (laughs) Why not do a sung through musical? But it's that what they should have done is hired a voice actor. Honestly, they should have done what they did with uh, Rita, which is like hire a voice actor to play her and then have Billy Joel sing the song. Yeah. But I, I think this show's, you know, the downside of Katzenberg's style of like, let's just cast big names rather than actors. I think Billy Joel's performance in this is pretty disastrous and shows why that can be a problem. Yeah. No offense to Billy Joel, <laughs> who is not a COVID denier. Yes. Uh, we got Cheech Marin doing the voice of Tito, a chihuahua. He's almost seems like the, you know, next main character in the movie as much uh, screen time as he gets. You know what I mean? Um, even though story-wise, he seems like less important. <laughs> well, again, he's the other big name. He is. And I mean, I think he's fun to listen to. I think Tito, you know, that has a good energy and Marin's a better voice actor. Yeah. And he's done a lot more voice acting later after this because he did a good job. <laughs> right. Well, Marin started, you know, the Cheech and Chong comedy act he was a part of they put out records and albums and like that is mostly how they do comedy. Yeah, exactly. So he's, he's used to voice only work like that. So, you know, that makes sense. Richard Mulligan does the dog Einstein. He's a great Dane. I didn't really see that Richard Mulligan had been in anything I really knew about. He seems to have done a lot of TV. So Roscoe Lee Brown does the voice of Francis, who's a bulldog. We're going to hear him again in another Disney movie later, but I don't think he's been in really anything we know. Yes, he is in Treasure Planet in Space or Treasure Island in Space. He is in Treasure Island in Space. Yes, he's Mr. Arrow. I've seen that movie enough to know he's Mr. Arrow, everybody. Cheryl Lee Ralph is the voice of Rita, who is... I had to look up what kind of dog Rita is because I was not recognizing her. It's a Saluki, which is a type of sight hound. And then we have Dom DeLuise as Fagin, who I 
kind of feel like they got because he'd been in all the Don Bluth stuff. I really think, again, it's like, there is nothing you have which we cannot take. Exactly, because he had been in every one of the Don Bluth movies up until that point. Yeah. And so they're like, we can have we can have Dom DeLuise, too. I'm not sure he works as Fagin. I like his voice. I like no several of his characters he's done, but Fagin just doesn't work for me. No, he's a good voice actor. And I don't know, maybe by default, one of the best performances in this movie. But the Fagin character is a mess and it's a real problem. I love Dom DeLuise as a comedian. I always, you know, think of him first for all his collaborations with Mel Brooks. Yeah. The greatest American director. Love him. But yeah, Fagin is is a problem. Mm -hmm. And then we've got Bette Midler, who does Georgette, a very spoiled poodle. And uh, she does a good job. I I think she does a really good job in this. Yeah, she's actually the best performance. Explain Bette Midler to our younger listeners. (laughs) Explain Bette Midler. Explain it. Uh, She's an actress. (laughs) One of the things I tend to think of her from, even though it's not what she's from first, is Hocus Pocus, (laughs) where she's the, you know, first witch Winifred. Well, I think that will actually go over well with the audience for this specific podcast. Right, because, I mean, it was a Disney movie. Disney Halloween (laughs) classic, for sure. It's true. Yeah, I mean, she's a award-winning singer, comedian, author, actress. You know, I mean, she's done all the things. She's a great actress and tends to do a lot of comedy things. And she's great in this because she's got a great voice anyway. Right, And Eisner really liked her. Uh, In 85, Disney signed a multi-picture deal with her. Yeah. And she was in a lot of touchstone movies that did very well. So she she was one of the first people who Eisner was like, we want to be in the Bette Midler business. I think she's definitely the best voice in this. (laughs) Yeah, she's the best performance and the most successful character, I'd say. I don't know if there's anyone else you really want to call out. We can, you know, just mention Robert Loja. Uh, is a very... Yeah, oh, as Sykes. Yeah, super well-renowned character actor. I think of him first from Lost Highway, which is about the least appropriate movie for kids I can think of. I think of him from Independence Day. (laughs) There you go. But he's in a ton of movies. He's pretty much always good. And I do think he's, he's good in this for what they have him do, which is just, can you do one day and be scary? And he's like, yeah, pretty much on autopilot. Yep. But this is actually one of the things that drove Eisner and Katzenberg apart was Eisner was like, we want recognizable names, but not expensive ones. <laughs> and Katzner more wanted to get the biggest celebrities. So, you know, that's he Katzenberg wants Billy Joel. Eisner wants like uh, Robert Loja and Bette Midler. And we do have Frank Welker doing a couple of voices, too. I mean, actual voices, not just sounds, because, of course, he does, you know, animal sounds and stuff. But he does, you know, Louis the hot dog vendor. Right. All right. So I want to talk about Tito. I'm sorry that we're an hour in, but real quick, this movie is often accused of being racist and offensive, and it's particularly in the character of Tito, but not exclusively. The thing is, at the time, they would say that they were and that is a really diverse cast for a Disney movie that we just laid out. It is. I mean, a couple of the main Characters in the gang are black actors. And at the time, they would have said, like, we are making the most diverse Disney movie ever. We're trying to show the diversity of New York City. But now 
because it relies very much on that Lady and the Tramp-esque stereotypical kind of characterization and humor. It is seen as offensive. I don't think we necessarily need to talk about it too much, but I do have two articles I will be sharing in the description because when we run into movies that are, you know, dealing with a culture other than our own in a significant way, we like to uh, include writers who are, you know, people of color or from that culture. Mm -hmm. In this case, I have an article by Robert Sosedo, I believe, uh, who is indeed a uh, Mexican-American man who the article is called Bad Movies Done Right, Oliver and Company, because it's from his Bad Movies Done Right column for Inside Pulse. Uh, Robert Sosedo has been a uh, movie critic for a lot of places and has is now a programming director at an Alamo draft house in Houston. <laughs> but uh, he he has an interesting article because he writes about how now he sees like Tito as this very stereotypical uh, Latino Chihuahua character, as he says. But he talks about how when he was a kid, he was just really happy to see a Hispanic character in a cartoon. And I watched an interview with Cheech Marin where he was kind of saying the same thing, where he was like, "I they made the character look more like me and like, I really want me to do my Chicano accent. And like, I feel like this is a big deal. So again, it's it kind of shows that this is how the movie was received and this is how it's received now. I wanted to include a, uh, a more academic article as well, because I think this movie is a little more complicated than some of them. Like, you know, when we talk about the Siamese twins in Lady and the Tramp, it's like, oh, this is just racist and bad right. and pretty straightforward. Right. This is more complicated. And so I want to include a more academic article. And so I actually will be linking to a book that's free on Google Books. Uh, <laughs> if anyone else besides me is going to read that. And it's called the it's a collection of essays. And the specific essay uh, that I will be linking to is White Man's Best Friend, Race and Privilege in Oliver and Company, written by Johnson Chu, uh, who is an Asian-American man. And he talks about. All of the stereotypes, the like Asian American and black character in the beginning and talks about how this movie is not necessarily in and of itself maliciously racist, but plays into a lot of stereotypes of the time and talks about how the main characters are white and they are constantly othered from including Oliver, like they are played by white actors. They are coded as white and they are constantly being othered from the non-white characters around them. He does talk a lot about that opening sequence where Oliver like sees all the humans around him of different races and is like mm -hmm. trying to imitate them and fails to. And this is the sequence that shows he's an outsider. And so it's talking about kind of how whiteness plays into this film. Um, again, that's really all I have to say about that. I don't think this is like a profoundly racist movie, but it's a thing people talk about. And so it's a thing we have a responsibility to mention. Yeah. Mom, let's talk about the five scenes in this movie. Take us through it. <laughs> so we start with the New York skyline. Very, uh, very lightly sketched in. Very sketchy looking. <laughs> very bad looking. In both senses of the word. It does look kind of bad. I did look at it again, like maybe it's just, you know, an effect they were going for. And maybe it is, but it, it doesn't give you a good impression right off the bat. No, this movie, they put more money into the characters and less money into the backgrounds versus we've talked about how like the backgrounds have to be gorgeously painted and the characters can be Xeroxed. And it looks it looks weird for a Disney movie. It's an unusual style. It is. 
So we have, uh, there's a box of kitties for sale and we have the first song playing once upon a time in New York city, giving us a New York state of mind. Very good. This song is written by Howard Ashman, who is a very important person. We have to talk about a lot for subsequent movies because he writes most of the best Disney songs after this. Yep. He did the lyrics. Barry Mann wrote the uh, song. Yes, thank you. And uh, it's performed by Huey Lewis, uh, who is another singer I really, really enjoy. And so mm-hmm. I was surprised that I find this song pretty unbearable. Yeah, it's just kind of it's kind of boring. Like you find it hard to pay attention to. They do mention Oliver's name in the song, which is kind of funny because Oliver doesn't get a name for like another, you know, 30, 40 minutes in the movie. All you know now is there's a kitten. (laughs) And why does nobody want Oliver? They do not make that clear. He just randomly is the cat that nobody picks. Like there's a box of a ton of different colors of kittens and they're just they show them all playing together and sleeping up, you know, in a pile. And people are coming along and being like, oh, I want this kitty. You know, I want that one. And he just never gets picked. There's no explanation. Like he doesn't look ugly or, you know, he is the only one that that's that color. But it's not that, you know, why would an orange cat be bad? You know, it's just random. Yes, The original Oliver Twist story, which is has almost nothing in common with, is such a specific story about poverty and kind of satirizing the current awful state of, you know, how Victorian England was treating children at the time. When you transfer it to animals, it's hard because animals can't be poor or rich. You know, they can't be like, oh, he's an orphan. Well, like they're animals. So does that really matter? Well, and he's presumed to be an orphan. They do say it in like the trailer, you know, orphan Oliver. So mom status. Oliver is an orphan. Doesn't have a mom. But none of the cats have like a mom who's there. Right. When you think about when you've got kittens you're giving away, that doesn't usually mean that you know, the mom is gone. It usually just means, you know, I've got this cat. She had a bunch of kittens and I don't want a bunch more cats. So here I'm giving, selling them or giving them away. And that was kind of the vibe I got. And, and who's going to be like, oh, this cat's an orphan. I don't want it. So (laughs) they can't have a good reason for Oliver not to be picked up. And so they just do it and assume you'll write a story in your brain for them. There you go. Anyway, there's a rainstorm. The cardboard box he's in gets collapsed and washed away. So and he's chased by some dogs, whatever. (laughs) And then we go on to the next day where we get our first cameo of a character from a previous Disney movie. We see Roger walking past the alley where... Roger from 101 Dalmatians. Right. Walking past the alley where Oliver, which we're just going to call him Oliver because calling him the kitten for a long time would be annoying. Yeah, that's that's foolish. Yeah, Roger's here. They actually redrew him. So it's an intentional Easter egg, not just uh, we got to fill out this crowd scene. But but yeah, that's that's cute. Yeah, I think they did several intentional Easter eggs in this movie. We have some, you know, like 80s music going on, like in the background, diegetic music. Uh, just of the world as he's wandering the streets of New York. This is so meant to establish this is the 80s. Yeah. We are telling a story about New York written by rich people who haven't lived in New York for a long time and never lived in this part. (laughs) Isn't it authentic? And they did apparently, you know, 
take a camera to New York and film from like 18 inches up to try to get, you know, the cat and dog's eye view of the place when they were going to animate this. But but, you know, it's you don't it's just it. they've got a lot of uh, this is this is what's going on the now. And then, you know, we're just going to skip ahead to Dodger arrives on the scene and Oliver sees uh, a guy selling hot dogs, old Louis, the hot dog man. And he's going to try to get hot dog because he's hungry. And of course, he doesn't want a cat stealing his hot dogs. <laughs> <laughs> and Dodger is super cool. He's got sunglasses. He's strutting up. He is he's smooth. Well, he doesn't have the sunglasses yet. Not yet, but he's going to. He's talking to this female dog and he talks like this and he's very cool and has a lot of energy and (laughs) he's animated with a lot of energy though. And he kind of dances and slides along. He's part of a, he is definitely part of a musical, you know, the choreography he's been working on his dance moves. But again, (laughs) this is, we're trying to be cool. We're trying to be the, this is the Disney movie with attitude. Doesn't Dodger have so much attitude sort of kind of not, not really, but doesn't either. Um, it's funny. I watched a behind the scenes featurette that was put out by Disney to promote the movie that's showing all the voice actors. And I don't know if they actually made him do this in the studio the whole time or if it's just for this featurette. It's funny either way. But every time they show Billy Joel recording his lines, he's got sunglasses. He does. I watched <laughs> that, too. It was so funny. I was like, does he just always wear sunglasses? <laughs> My guess is that they made him put it on for the featurette to be like, you have to be cool. Because why would you want to? He's in like a dark recording booth <laughs> trying to read a script. Why would he be wearing sunglasses? Very funny. Anyway, so Dodger gets uh, Oliver to help him steal the hot dogs. And then they're go- he says they're going to share But of course, after they steal the hot dogs, Dodger's like, see you later. I do. I'm sorry. I know we have to get through it. I have to call out Dodger saying that Oliver is going to get a free lesson in street savoir faire from NY's coolest quadruped, which Mm -hmm. establishes two things that will happen constantly in this movie. One, saying street savoir faire, which is a pretty clever line, but they way overuse it. Right. And two, people telling you Dodger is cool. (laughs) (laughs) So many characters in this movie have a line about how cool Dodger is to desperately convince you, like, don't you like him? Don't you like it? Isn't this a character you want on a T-shirt from the Disney store? (laughs) It's it's a very desperate film. Mm -hmm. So then after they do steal the hot dogs, Dodger is like, that's your first lesson that, you know, there's no free lunch. Don't trust anyone, basically. (laughs) <laughs> Except you pretty much can trust people throughout this whole movie. This it's is true. not really paid off. This is my favorite scene, though. He's heading off and uh, Oliver is following him and he starts singing the Why Should I Dodger, I should say, starts singing the Why Should I Worry song, which I agree. This is probably my favorite scene, too, even though I feel like it's probably the scene I've seen the most. Yeah, because it's the main big song. But it has it has so much fun energy. Uh, Billy Joel is singing and he sounds great. <laughs> and there's just so much fun stuff going on. It basically turns into a big 
um, musical dance number. You know, like everybody's involved. Every scene you remember from this movie is in here. The uh, computer assisted animation shot, which they have a lot of in this movie, of Oliver running over the 3D cars. Dodger walking over the grate and it blowing up like the sausage tie around his neck and his tail. Like mm-hmm. it is really well animated. And you're right. The shift in energy is insane because I watched the scene again today and it goes from him talking to the song. So he's like, there's one thing you should know, kid. One minute I'm in Central Park. And it's like, <laughs> is this a different voice? Let me look it up. No, no. Interesting. <laughs> this song was not written by Billy Joel or by people he ever collaborated with again. I think no. it's a fun song. You do want to dance to it when you hear it. Like, yeah. I, as I say, I've been listening to it this week and enjoying it. If you actually listen to or read the lyrics, it is just listing places in New York. Yeah. <laughs> and it has the bridge which musically is great. It's like the rhythm of the city, but once you get it down. But the lyrics are the rhythm of the city, but once you get it down, which doesn't make any sense, said you can own this town, which also doesn't make any sense. You can wear the crown. It's gibberish. (laughs) And this song was written by, because I was like, who wrote this song that, is so much lyrically worse uh, than a Billy Joel song, even if musically it's pretty fun. It's written by Dan Hartman and Charlie Midnight, who were hired because in 85, they had won a Grammy Award for writing Living in America. Yeah. The uh, James Brown song. Yeah. Which, funnily enough, I listened to that again today, and I was like, this song's also just kind of a list of places. That's their style. (laughs) At least it has that part in the song where he's just listing places. You know, he's like, New York City, Kansas City. (laughs) <laughs> is, that's just their style, I think, of lyrics is listing places <laughs> in a way that rhymes. Yeah, it's it's funny because a lot of the lyrics in the songs in this movie, if you just read the lyrics, they don't make sense. Same with that first song, Once Upon a Time in New York City. I was looking through the lyrics for that going, these don't make a lot of sense either. <laughs> Which is why they're not very memorable and singable is because if you try to sing them, you're like, wait, these these words are what? Right. It's because they're doing pop songs, which not to be like pop is bad, but pop tends to be less lyrically interesting and lyrically focused. Mm -hmm. What they hit on with Little Mermaid and we'll do in the movies after that is they realize, oh, we should be doing Broadway songs. That should be our inspiration. Yeah. Anyway, this scene is fun. Definitely the best scene in the movie. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's not this transcendent musical number like in Aristocats, which, by the way, this movie definitely is is taking a lot from the Aristocats, which I just think it's got a lot of Aristocats vibes, which I just think is funny as we're at the end of the Bronze Era. Every Bronze Era film, we've been like they were ripping off this or they were inspired by this. They were trying to do this. You know, I think it's funny that now we've gotten to the point where the last Bronze Era film is really trying to be a take on the first Bronze Era film. <laughs> oh, I forgot to mention, we do have a few more cameos during this song. Jock and Trusty and Peg from Lady and the Tramp and Pongo from Hunter One Dalmatians are in the animals we go past at different points. Dogs, I mean, I should say. Pongo gets like a big feature, which is kind of weird. It's like, I like these when they're Easter eggs, but you're really making me like look at Pongo. Yeah, I don't know. It's weird. All right. Now the rest of this movie. Get it over with. We've talked about the good part. <laughs> so Dodger uh, makes his way by the end of the song to a nasty old houseboat 
where we meet the rest of the dogs in his gang. I think actually we start seeing them before Dodger actually goes in, right? Uh, some like that, yeah. There's there's Francis, who's an English bulldog. Tito calls him Frankie all the time and he doesn't like it. Stereotypical Brit. Very posh. Yep. Einstein is a great Dane. Yep. His name's Einstein and he's dumb. Yep. Rita is a girl. She is. <laughs> <laughs> we are listing all of the character, like every character trait of these characters because they wrote one thing down and were like, that's a character. Nailed it. Mm-hmm. Yep. And Tito is a chihuahua. Tito is Hispanic and that's and he's his the annoying trait. one. He is annoying. Yep. He's annoying to the other characters. I don't know. He's kind of annoying to the people watching the movie as well. But my mean is. Yes, yes, yes. The other characters are frequently annoyed with him. I just uh, normally I don't really enjoy characters whose comedic game is being annoying. <laughs> Tito's not the worst of this, but I don't know. He's not my favorite. That's for sure. And there's a lot of him. Mm -hmm. And they're collecting trash. They've been collecting things. And their box of loot, quote unquote, as it says on the box, is garbage. Just random broken things they've been finding. Because they're dogs. <laughs> yeah. Having a dog gang is not very smart. I would rather have a human gang if it were me. Yeah. Dodger brings in the food because apparently Francis was supposed to get the food and wasn't able to. Somebody. I don't know. Something like that. Anyway, they're all sharing the hot dogs. Oliver falls in and there's a whole big freak out moment where they're like, what's going on? And then it's like, oh, it's a cat. <laughs> yep. I don't know. Why is he a cat? Is the idea like, again, to further make him an outsider because he's not an orphan, but like, I don't know. It's weird or because he's not a dog. I, I don't know. They put no thought into any of this. I mean, the pitch was Oliver twist with dogs and they never thought of a different thing. Like that's. They never wrote a story. Uh, but then Fagin arrives. And Fagin's a human. He is a human. And these are his dogs. And they are obviously taking care of him. And, you know, he wanted them to to find things for him because he is in debt to this horrible guy named Sykes. And we don't know why he's in debt or how much, just that it's a lot. And he's having a hard time. Paying his loan off. Fagin is a really well animated character. He has kind of my favorite poses and movements, but he's a really bad character. And we <laughs> should probably talk about it because he just he's not specific enough. Fagin in the original story is, you know, sort of a bad guy. I mean, he is truly a thief. Yep. He doesn't treat Oliver very well. He barely offers a better alternative to the, you know, to the orphanage. But He's also an anti-Semitic caricature. Right. But that's fine. Uh, but like, you know, in this, because it's a Disney movie, they're like, well, he has to be a pure good guy. And so he never really successfully steals anything or even scavenges garbage. Neither do any of the dogs. The only thing that gets stolen in this whole movie, we realized as we were talking about it, are the hot dogs. And they have to go out of their way to be like, old Louie is a huge jerk. He's awful. It's fine to steal from yeah. him, which also he's an enemy of all four legged creatures. Right. And by the way, the uh, the article I linked to with the uh, white man's best friend talks about how old Louie is also plays into a lot of Italian stereotypes. So there's that. But and so, like, what is Fagin? 
why did he decide to form a gang of dogs? Why did he decide to be a thief when he's really bad at it? Why is he in debt to Sykes? Because all we know is that he's in debt to Sykes and isn't really doesn't seem to be trying very hard to pay it. And it's like, I don't know, man, you have to pay your debts. Like, I don't like that we live in a society either, but we do. It's it's not a very sympathetic motivation. We don't know why he doesn't have a job. He owns or has all of these. A lot of them are purebred dogs. They're worth money. Like Rita, that's an expensive dog breed right there. Also, not for nothing, Fagan. You're dying of starvation, but you're surrounded by these dogs. (laughs) But we know he's a nice guy because he brings home dog biscuits for the dogs. And he's like starving to death. And his character design is so gross. It's so gross a character design. He looks like he smells like corn chips and feet. (laughs) Um, At all times, he's unpleasant. And I feel, and you know, making Fagin a sympathetic character is a fine idea for a Disney movie, but they don't. I never know how I'm supposed to feel about Fagin because he's so visually repulsive and later on he'll do some kind of bad stuff. But he also does some kind of good stuff. Mm -hmm. As you were saying, like he's nice to the dogs and... Honestly, I hate to be this guy, but Fagin, maybe you should just get a job. You're not good at thieving. Right. And you don't really seem to enjoy it. Can you just like, I don't know, figure something out. And it's it's also very strange that at the end of the movie, he's still in poverty. <laughs> he's just like, well, back to my filthy houseboat. Yeah. Back to starving to death. I'll probably die on the streets. It's New York. Really weird. Really weird character. Anyway, so Sykes actually you know, shows up in this scene so we can meet the bad guy with his two mean dogs who are Dobermans. The license plate of his car is also Doberman. Because we got to have human bad guys and dog bad guys because, again, this movie, like, can't decide if it's about the human characters or about the dog. It's just a mess. Whole thing's a mess. Also, the car is some really unnecessary computer-assisted animation. (laughs) Like, there's such a reveal of the car and it's... It's so 3D, it looks jarring against the rest of the world. It does, kind of. I feel like the computer-assisted animation in Great Mouse Detective served kind of a story reason, and it's isolated to that one scene, and so it doesn't look as weird as it sometimes does in this, where they're really going for it. You can pretty much tell whenever they're they're doing it for the backgrounds. You're like, oh, here's another one. Everything is suddenly moving in an unusual manner. Yeah. Musker and Clements knew how to incorporate this technology into the story better and into the visuals better, which is, of course, why Treasure Island in Space. Well, I'm just having fun calling it that in this episode, but Treasure Island in Space. Right. That's the main reason I love that movie is because the visuals are so cool because they mix CGI and 2D animation brilliantly. Anyway, Oliver and company. Yep. Fagin is told he's got three days to repay his loan. Oliver scratches the nose of one of the dogs, the the Dobermans, I should say. Their names are Roscoe and DeSoto, and, you know, they're just thugs. Yes, and real quick, all the dogs in this movie are talking about eating cats, which is not a thing dogs do at all. It's not. Really weird. It is really weird. Dogs don't eat cats. Dogs and cats don't even really not get along like the stereotype. Mm-hmm. Outside of certain situations, you know, they're both territorial animals, so they can not like other things in their space, but uh, they certainly aren't eating each other. That's crazy. No. 
Anyway, Oliver's in the gang now, even though Dodger was like, ha, you can't trust anyone. As soon as he's in the houseboat, he's like, ha, we're actually friends. And Oliver's like, I'm not even a character at all. Yeah, but uh, Fagin adopts him is like, you know, another mouth to feed, whatever. (laughs) (laughs) I'm in massive debt and starving to death. Let me adopt a little kitten. Yeah. And Fagin reads a little picture book to the dogs as they're all going to sleep. That's so you know he's a good guy, I guess. Oliver snuggles up to Dodger as they're going to sleep. So, you know, Dodger's really a good guy. I uh, forgot to mention, we actually have several several shots of the tw- Twin Towers, the World Trade Center Towers in this movie, because, of course, it was made in the 80s. Yeah, I wasn't even going to talk about this, but sure, let's talk about 9-11, Mom. I'm just saying that it's noticeable. It's something that you're like, oh, yeah, of it's course. It's true. Because they were the iconic. They were the landmarks of New York. I mean, that's. That's, they were the iconic visuals of New York City. And so if you're going to do New York, you got to have that's, that. That's why they were a target for the attack, because they were such a symbol of, like, you know, economic power. And, and you know, they were the tallest things in the New York skyline and all this stuff. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, and Disney did not cut them out of subsequent releases, uh, which they mostly did out of laziness. But then it was seen as like this heroic move. And they're like, oh, yeah, we'll take that credit. You know, uh, Disney loves when you give them free press and many people are happy to do that. Of course. But not us. Katzenberg <laughs> ate babies. <laughs> so the next day they have to go out and steal stuff for Fagin because, of course, he has to pay off his debt somehow. And the only way he can think of is to send his animals to go out and steal stuff, not even going out and stealing stuff himself. Then Rita sings this song, Streets of Gold, which tune I have completely forgotten already. Who cares? It's sung by Ruth Pointer, who's cool. And yeah. Yeah. I remember it it sounding... Nice when we heard it, but it has, again, butter slipped right out. (laughs) Basically, what she's doing is she's telling Oliver about how if you know what you're doing, you can make money on the streets, which they apparently don't know what they're doing because they are unable to make money on the streets. So they make this whole plan where they're going to stop fancy cars so that they can steal the radio out of it or something. It's not clear. We were trying to figure out what they're stealing. I think it's supposed to be the stereo, but yeah, it's even that is so vague. (laughs) It is. But basically they end up stopping the car that has Jenny in it with her chauffeur, Wilson. Winston. That his name. Winston. Winston. My apologies. Yes. Jenny was supposed to be Penny from the rescuers, which is a super weird idea. It is kind of a weird idea. Our for introduction to her is that she is reading a letter from her parents who are, I believe, in Europe, and they are not going to be able to come home for her birthday, which is in a couple days. She's going to be turning eight and her parents aren't going to be there. So we'll have a mom status for Jenny. Absentee. <laughs> Mom status, getting drunk. I don't know. Having a good time on the beach and absolutely not caring about her daughter. Exactly. Which I guess is supposed to, you know, make you feel sympathetic. Poor little rich girl. It's hard to feel sympathetic for Jenny in this movie. She does feel like such a a rich girl. And, and once again, I have to apologize to the rescuers because Penny 
is not a super well-realized character, but compared to Jenny, she's the most complex, rich, and, you know, she is any character at all. She has an actual reason to be sympathetic. Penny's just like, I'm a little kid. Don't you like me? And it's like, I, in your limo with your butler, (laughs) getting diseases from random stray cats you pick up off the street. (laughs) Yeah. Oliver ends up in the car. Jenny finds him and the others all the rest of the dog gang escapes. um, But they leave Oliver behind and they're like, oh, no, we shouldn't have left him behind. And yet Oliver is getting pampered and loved on because, you know, Jenny is so excited to have a little cat. The dogs do have this moment. I think it's actually in a little bit. So I'm sorry for skipping ahead. But also, what should I care? Uh, Where they're like, do we continue collecting more stuff for Fagin? Who needs our help? Or do we rescue Oliver? And they decide to rescue Oliver, which I think is a weird choice. You've known Fagin for years. He feeds you. You've known Oliver for less than 24 hours. A day. And he was mean to one dog you don't like. And that was it. But okay. Yeah, yeah. Now Georgette. Yes. So we get back to Jenny's house and we meet Georgette, who is a poodle. And she is the Foxworth. Jenny is Foxworth is her last name. The Foxworth family's spoiled prize winning poodle. She's a real uptown girl. You're having a lot of fun here tonight. (laughs) Now do down Easter Alexa and I'll be really impressed. (laughs) We meet her with the song Perfect Isn't Easy, which I had actually forgotten about this song until we were watching the movie. And then I was like, oh, yeah, I do remember. I've seen this scene with the song. I feel like I've seen that scene several times as well. So I don't know if it was on a, you know, like one of those Disney sing along things that I had or seen Or at the Disney store, they used to, I mean, they still do have, you know, the big TV screen at the Disney store where they'll play videos and, you know, little things from the movies all day long. And I'm wondering if the brief time when I worked at the Disney store, her song was one of the ones that played a lot (laughs) because it was very familiar once it came on. It's a fine song, I guess. It's a fine song. I mean, Bette Midler's a good a good singer. And the song is, it's probably like my second favorite part of the movie because it's just so silly. Like everything else in this movie, her character's a little weird because this feels like a villain song and she's a villain for a little bit, but then she's just kind of not. Yeah, she's, she's an in-between kind of a character. Um, we do have a cameo of a photograph of Radigan in this scene, which doesn't really make a lot of sense because it's she's got this whole table full of photographs of her admirers or something. And one of them is Radigan. <laughs> oh, Jeffrey Katzenberg, I'm afraid you've gone and upset me. <laughs> so Jenny finally names him Oliver and You know, this far into the movie, the kids finally got a name. Um, The dogs think that Oliver is in trouble. And so they've got to rescue him. Oh, no, they're going to torture him, whatever they're like going on. And of course, they're worried about him being tortured and he's being pampered in the extreme. (laughs) We get a whole song that Jenny sings called Good Company, which this 
right here reminded me a lot of Aristocats because she's playing a very simple song on the piano. It's shockingly blatant. Yeah. And then we have a whole montage of them having fun together throughout the day. He, she buys him a collar, a very fancy collar that has his name and her address on it. And there's all these circular pans that you're like, there's another computer assisted animation shot. This is when I was like, how much time is passing? Because we've established a three day deadline, but it seems like this is taking longer. At first, we thought it was one day. Then we thought it was two days. I'm only bringing this up to once again be like this movie is vague and unconvincing. Mm -hmm, It is. So the next day, uh, Jenny has to go to school and the other dogs are going to go rescue Oliver, which it took them this whole next to the next day to do it. They couldn't have been off stealing things in the meantime. You know, not that I'm encouraging dog theft, but it just doesn't make sense. If they're thieves, they should be thieves. Robin Hood is a thief and he steals stuff. Yep. Scene one, stealing stuff. Scene two, stealing stuff. Later Mm -hmm. on, also stealing stuff. Except for when he is giving away the stuff he stole to the people who need it. Right. That's like his whole deal. But he's like, here's my deal. I'm Robin Hood. I steal from the rich and give to the poor. And then you see him do both those things. And it's like, you know what? That guy delivers. (laughs) He does. Doesn't deliver. And he he smells like corn chips and feet. (laughs) He smells like dry scabs. So they managed to sneak their way into the house Because they knew where Oliver was, what house he was in, because they'd kind of followed the limousine home the other day, Mm -hmm. previous day. And they they Muppet man themselves into being a pizza delivery man. Just kind of a funny drawing. That's later. That's when they get into Sykes Warehouse. I'm looking at my notes and I can't. (laughs) I really can't care or remember this movie. Yeah, they get in. George, when Georgette is the first, like, ah, get out of here. What are you horrible mongrels doing in here? And then when she finds out that they're coming to rescue Oliver, she's like, oh, of course, take him away. Because she doesn't like all the attention he's getting. She's very jealous of him. Tito falls in love with Georgette, like, immediately. And I don't even remember who says this, but at some point, somebody says, the gang means family. And I was like, <laughs> that's that's very silly. <laughs> You're making such a face. Oh man. But yeah, the gang means nobody gets left behind or forgotten. I right? <laughs> Snitches get stitches. <laughs> it's just such a bad uh, gang, I have to say. It's really listen. The dog mafia, say what you will about them. They they would have cleaned this up. They would have figured yep. this out. <laughs> So obviously when they get Oliver back to the houseboat and take him out of the sack that they carried him in or whatever, he's like, but I wasn't, you know, a prisoner being tortured. I actually like Jenny and I want to stay there. Why didn't you leave me there? And Dodger is all offended because I've known you for a day and now you have to be my best bud or else. And Oliver... (laughs) Who is, again, not a character, but he makes a pretty good point here where he's talking about, like, I like you guys. You're fun. You're my friends. But I don't like living in filth, eating nothing. Exactly. Like, he's like, I want to hang out with you guys, but I don't want to live with you or something like that. (laughs) Which, again, you're like, 
Yeah. Same. It makes a lot of sense. Why are you guys living with Fagin? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Just because he reads you a story, I bet you can find another pet owner who will read you stories. Yep. So this is where it feels like it's been only one day or two days, but Fagin is coming home really upset because he hasn't been able to raise the money. But you feel like, don't you have a couple more days? But anyway, he sees Oliver's collar, though, of course, gets the idea for a ransom note. So he... Uh, writes a ransom note that he then drops off at Jenny's house and she finds it. And it's, you know, if you ever want to see your kitten kitty again, you're going to have to pay me lots and lots of money. I don't think he even specifies an amount of money. And Fagan then goes to Sykes's warehouse to tell him about his ransom plan to be like, I don't have your money now, but I've got this great plan, so I'll be able to get it. Which makes no sense because right. we don't seem to be at the deadline. I know. And it would make more sense for him to just execute the plan, get the money, and give it to Sykes. Right. But if we're at the deadline, then it makes sense for him to be telling Sykes about it. Like, I don't have your money yet, but I've got a plan. It's coming. I'm going to get your money. And then uh, Sykes actually is like, oh, yeah, you. it is a good plan. <laughs> Which is also weird because it's not a great plan. Yeah. It's, you know, we don't really know what Sykes's deal is either. I'll be I mean, that's just it's true. That's the theme. Except that he has nasty cigar smoke like Cruella DeVille's smoke was nasty. No, I mean, that's the thing. He's drawn like a villain. He's the villain. <laughs> he just is. But, you know, he's not. Yeah, exactly. He just is the villain. Yeah. We do see in one of these scenes around this time, Fagin pulls up his sleeve and he's got like four watches on. And one of them is a Mickey Mouse watch, which is kind of funny. Yeah. I saw somebody describe that as a secret hidden Mickey head. And I'm like, that's not a secret hidden Mickey head. That's a straight up obvious Blatant. Mickey head. <laughs> yeah. All these Easter eggs and stuff that feels very Katzenbergy, where he's like, we're referencing a thing, you know, and that's a joke. So Jenny takes Georgette with her to go find Fagin to or to find the kidnapper. She doesn't know who it is, of course. Doesn't tell the butler doesn't involve an adult in this process. I know that's what's crazy. Doesn't even have a throwaway line of like, I can't tell Winston because lame excuse. Yeah, or he's, you know, out doing the grocery shopping and I don't have time. I don't know. They just literally don't say why. So she's trying to follow this terrible map that Fagin drew because he apparently has the literacy of an eight year old. (laughs) And then they do end up bumping into each other. But and Jenny's telling Fagin her story And he, of course, realizes, oh, she's coming to ransom the cat, but she only brought her piggy bank, so he's not going to get a lot of money. So he he's upset because his plan has backfired, but he's also like really sorry that he took this little girl's cat because she's upset. Oh, and I was going to say, I don't know why she takes Georgette because she seems like she'd be the most worthless dog in this situation. Just because they want Georgette to be in the scene. Yeah, they don't even like try to hide the the script machinations, you know. <laughs> but Sykes was watching and, you know, Fagin didn't know when Fagin tries to just pretend he found Oliver and give her give him back to Jenny. Sykes comes along and actually kidnaps Jenny, because, you know, if you think ransoming a cat 
to a rich girl is going to be good. Ransoming the rich girl to her parents has got to be better. Except not these parents. They'll be like, who's Jenny? (laughs) So the gang sets off to rescue Jenny. And this is where we have the Muppet Man made to look like a pizza delivery guy so they can get into the warehouse. This is also where I stopped taking as detailed of notes on the, on the movie because it was really hard. It's just like an action scene per se, but it's really bad and boring. And even with an action scene, you have to be invested in the characters. And there's no characters I've, I've been invested in less. But, you know, basically the dogs are trying to rescue Jenny and they like get into a corner. Fagin shows up to rescue the dogs. Then there's a pretty technically cool shot in a CGI subway. Yeah. Uh, and there's a big car chase and it ends with uh, driving on the tracks and it ends with everyone else getting rescued and Sykes getting hit by a train, which is a pretty brutal way to go. And it's that classic Disney villain death of it's not the hero's fault. <laughs> yes. And they also have the classic Oh no, our main character Oliver is dead. How dare they try this? Oh wait, he's not. He's not dead. Yay. How dare they try this? Especially right after Great Mouse Detective, where it actually kind of worked more because, you know, he fell off the building. And because he's a character you care about, and there's a good Henry Mancini score selling the emotions, and yeah. But this year, like, he's, you know, he got like flung out of the car before it got hit by a train. Neither you nor I noticed anything had happened to him until they're like, he's dead. Oh no, he looks dead, but he was just hurt and he's totally fine. And then the next day, everybody's at Jenny's birthday party. (laughs) You know, there's no real danger in this movie because only the good die young. This movie is bad. Alrighty then. That one was a hard stretch. (laughs) You know, mom, maybe you should just leave a tender moment alone. (laughs) So they're at Jenny's birthday party. So, you know, hopefully they kind of made Fagin take a bath. But they they've brought presents for Jenny's birthday and it's all the trash that the dogs found. Right. And again, Fagin, you know, is talking to Winston and he's like, I'm dying pretty bad. And Winston's like, sounds like a you problem. Farewell. (laughs) I just I'm expecting the Disney ending where things get better for him at all. And I guess the only thing that's better for him is that Sykes isn't going to immediately kill him. So now he can just now he gets to die slowly instead of quickly. (laughs) Not a great ending for Fagin, a character who I think we're supposed to care about. As they're getting ready to leave, Tito and Georgette are getting along a lot better because Tito kindly kind of saved her life in the big car chase. She's kind, you know, being like, maybe if we, you know, just change a little bit about, you know, your look. And Tito's like, my look, what? And so then she's kind of like dressed him up in a fancy outfit or whatever. And he's like, now get me out of here. It's like this whole subplot with the two of them that happens in one continuous minute. <laughs> it feels like it should be more throughout the movie, but the weird structure of this movie is such that they don't meet each other really until the very end. And then they reprise the best song. They reprise the Why Should I Worry song, right? Yes, they do. Uh, and they do 
say that Oliver will be the uptown chapter of the gang, which is, you know, the the uptown girl reference sort of of the movie. I, guess. I don't know, whatever. Sort of. It's true. This movie makes <laughs> me want to say goodbye to Hollywood. I guess it's time for sequels, spinoffs, remakes, rides and reboots. I got nothing. Do you have anything? Does, did this movie exist at all after release? So there were park costumes for all the main characters, especially for right after it came out. Are they awful? Let me share with let me let me hit you with some of this. Oh, boy. They're not that bad. They're not terrible, but they're not great either. I mean, this was this was the late 80s. They could do decent costumes then. It's just weird to see Oliver taller than Jenny because Jenny is just a human <laughs> girl and Oliver is clearly a grown person in a cat suit. And, and it is Oliver and Dodger and Tito and... And Georgette. Oh, you're right. There is Georgette there. This looks like it's basically an advertisement for it, like a float that was in the a parade at the time, you know? And I guarantee the parade music is Why Should I Worry? I can I can guarantee. Oh, yeah. And, you know, they appeared on some House of Mouse episodes like everybody else. Right. There's always if nothing else, the characters are usually in House of Mouse episodes. And that is all I could find. No other park stuff. This truly is. This is our first movie that doesn't really have any sequel spinoffs, remakes, rides or reboots at all. Not even something sweaty we can force in there that doesn't really fit. And it's not that surprising because nobody at the studio liked it. Even it was kind of Katzenberg's baby, but even he didn't, you know, love it after release and nobody working on it liked it. And it was critically panned across the board. Just one thing I forgot to mention earlier was pretty much universally loathed. People want Disney movies to be fairy tales, which is, you know, what we'll see next week. Like uh, they want them to feel timeless and magical and really take you to another world and not be like New York City's full of homeless people. And you're like, oh, I guess. Yeah. And you're like, people get smushed by trains. And you're like, oh, I guess. <laughs> but it was just the bad guy, we swear. <laughs> And uh, with that, we always ask each other two questions uh, to review the film, which is, would you recommend this movie and would you show it to a child? Mom, what are your answers to those questions? Well, if somebody asked me if they should watch this movie, I would probably say it's fine, but I wouldn't really recommend it. There's some fun bits, but mostly it's just going to slide right out. <laughs> I think that's a no. I think that's a non-recommend <laughs> is what I'm hearing. Yeah. But I wouldn't be like, oh, don't watch Oliver and Company. That movie's just the worst. But, you know, and would I show this to a child? Yeah, I probably would. I wondered, though, if this was one that if you watched it a lot as a child, then you'd have the nostalgia for it and it would feel better. Maybe I know some people who have some nostalgia for it, but not a lot. Yeah. Obviously, I don't recommend this movie. Again, for me, this is one of the worst of the Bronze Era, only beaten by Fox and the Hound, which is, again, just so <laughs> apocalyptic that... So far, it's the bottom of the barrel. I think it's really bad. I think it is everything that I dislike in a movie, and I might show it to a kid. I, don't, I mean, it's kind of a, like... As you say, why would I show this to anyone, child or adult or otherwise? It's yeah. it's a little edgy. 
I, I don't think I would show this to a child. So what are your thoughts on the Bronze Era as a whole? It's It's been a really interesting journey. Yeah. I think the eras of Disney that interest me the most are the ones where they're trying to find their way. I mean, at this point, I'm excited to do the Renaissance Era just because I'm excited to watch some consistently good movies. But, <laughs> like my favorite, the eras I've been most interested in doing were the Bronze Era and the Experimental Era, which is like Bronze Era 2. <laughs> I think those are super interesting in their inconsistencies and all the different takes that different people had on what a Disney movie should be. Um, I enjoyed talking about it. I think we put together a really good series. I do want to shout out Brad again. Um, this is the best that our show has ever sounded. <laughs> and the new production is so much like better. And it has allowed us to do so many more episodes in a shorter time and keep to a schedule and all that good stuff. As far as the movies themselves, it is amazing how pretty much every time we watched another movie, I felt better about previous movies. And I think part <laughs> of that is because... A lot of these, you just forget most of them. Like I've said several times, like I was too harsh to the rescuers. It is a very boring film, but watching these movies after it, it doesn't feel as bad. I wonder though, if I went back and watched the rescuers, if I would still dislike it because again, there is so much empty space in so many of these movies that your brain condenses it to the four or five real scenes. And I, I wonder, yeah, I wonder if I went back and watched The Rescuers if I would find it very boring. But like it and the Aristocats do feel better than this later era. They have more personality. They have a little more of that Disney magic. But, you know, I pretty much feel the same way I did going in, which is like Many Adventures of Winnie the Pooh is the best because it's kind of a secret Silver Era movie. Yeah, that's what I was going to say is my favorite, too. Great Mouse Detective is great. Mm -hmm. And Robin Hood is great. And the rest of them are various degrees of I can take or leave them. It's true. Uh, what are your thoughts on the Bronze Era? Well, you managed to say most of my thoughts, too. I'm glad it's over, though. I also am looking forward to going on to some other stuff. I was surprised that none of my opinions on the movies really changed that much. Like, I kind of had hoped some of them were either better than I remembered or I would like them differently watching them at a different stage in my life but that didn't really happen <laughs> no pretty much my opinions of the movies stayed my opinions of the movies in this era none of them really changed i agree i also on the fox and the hound i talked about how we both went in like maybe we'll enjoy it because we haven't seen it and with Oliver and Company, like I've been looking forward to the Oliver and Company episode and I hope that mm -hmm. this has been a fun episode. But oh, yeah, watching the movie was it felt brutal. It felt like <laughs> an attack. I I really don't like a lot of these films, but then I, I really love some of the it's been such such whiplash. It was definitely interesting to go through it. Yeah, it's not good to watch the movies, but it's <laughs> great to talk and listen about them. And I hope that, uh, you know, all of you listening, you learned some stuff. You got to hear us, you know, try to build a coherent, cohesive narrative out of this very strange time in Disney history. And uh, I hope you all watch A Great Mouse Detective. <laughs> yep, because that one's fun. And The Brave Little Toaster, because that one's not fun at all. <laughs> The last thing I'll say about the Bronze Era is that so many of these movies, you can imagine the good versions of them. I think Oliver and Company is the only one 
where I truly can't. Even Fox and the Hound, you can at least see a better version of it. That is kind of a shame. Like Disney's 70s and 80s output could potentially have been great. Mm-hmm. And there's such glimmers of greatness. And instead do mostly to executive stupidity <laughs> in one degree or another. They were not. And who knows? I mean, uh, and it's especially interesting in the 80s where it's like every great animator of the next like several decades leaves Disney and goes and makes a masterpiece like (laughs) Don Bluth, Brad Bird, Tim Burton, Jerry Reese, all of them. It's it's they just like it's so funny that Disney was like, we don't need any of you people. And they're like, fine, we'll make our own movies. And all of those movies are great. All of the movies they made out of spite. And so, again, it's like if Disney had actually fostered this talent, there could have been greater. What could it have been? I know. Oh, well. So we'll be back next week with 1989's The Little Mermaid, directed by Musker and Clements. Mom, what do you think of this movie? This is the first Disney animated movie that I ever saw in theaters. Oh, You truly got to be part of that world. I did. Isn't it so nice to have that to look forward to? It really, really is. Um, We will be taking a week off between miniseries per usual. We weren't sure if we were going to, but the Jewish High Holy Days are happening, so it's we we need that. So we'll take that one week off and then we'll definitely be back the week after with Little Mermaid, which is probably already recorded by the time you're listening to this. <laughs> yeah. And then we'll enter the Renaissance era. A good time. It's been such a wonderful time with Oliver and company. Uh, I've seen the lights go out on Broadway. I'm me. I'm mom and I love you just the way you are. And it all started with a mouse. It's still rock and roll to me. Oh, wait, we didn't start the fire. That's another one. Wait, music, stop. Come on.